All right, well, good morning. As Bo said, my name is Mark with a K, and it is a privilege and honor to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and make your way to the book of Philippians, and I'll read our passage for this morning, then we'll go ahead and, and jump in. So our text for this morning will be Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. And if you are able to, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 1, starting in verse 19. And these are the words of God. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And let us pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the people of Christ's Covenant Church, that you have kept them faithful, that they have been stable and steadfast, that they have not shifted from the hope of the gospel that they have heard. I thank you for their joy in Christ, their worship of you, that you have caused them to be born again to a living hope. I thank you for the faithful elders of Christ's covenant church, that the ascended Christ has given men who would faithfully preach the word of God and who would love and care for and shepherd the flock of God. And we pray this morning for the preaching of your word, and that you would attend it with power, that you would give us ears to hear, you would give us eyes to see the glory of Christ and to hear your most precious and abiding word, and that we would keep it with our whole lives by the power of your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, and amen. Please be seated. To be or not to be? That is the question. To be or not to be? That is the question. Well, even if you recoil against all things poetry, even if poetry is a, a disgust to you, no doubt you recognize that those are the words of one Billy Shakespeare in the mouth of his Prince Hamlet. And that verse, that line, takes us to that memorable scene where Prince Hamlet, he's the prince of Denmark, he's musing out loud because he's in the, the face of this dilemma. 
This uncle has just murdered his father and married his mother and seized the throne of Denmark, the throne that rightfully belonged to Prince Hamlet. And so Prince Hamlet is agonizing. He's saying, perhaps it would be better just to die in light of this agony. And so he utters that famous line, but the problem is, is that, in Hamlet's own words, he says, look, death is an undiscovered country. Death is a place from where no traveler returns from. Death is this ominous puzzle. There's nothing at all advantageous about death for me. So that's why he utters this line, to be or not to be, to die or not to die. That is the question. And so I think our dear Hamlet would be shocked. He would be awed at what we are looking at this morning as we look at another prince, Prince Paul. And what Prince Paul shares with us this morning, who is not simply musing out loud, but by inspiration of the eternal spirit, declares that to live is Christ and to die is in fact gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And so our main point for this morning, for this sermon, is simply this. To gain Christ in death entails or means living for Christ in life. The believer is united to Christ in all things, even in death. And if we're united to Christ in death, how much more so is that the case in day-to-day life? And so as we walk through our text and break it down in three simple sections, I want to look through, firstly, Paul's expectation. What is Paul's expectation? Secondly, what is Paul's tension? What's the tension that he feels? And thirdly, what is Paul's conviction? So firstly, a look at Paul's eager expectation. So Philippians begins with Paul rejoicing. He's rejoicing that even though he's in prison, even though he's in chains, the Word of God is not bound. He's rejoicing that the Gospel is spreading, even if it's being spread by envy and uh, selfish proclamation, he's still rejoicing. And then in verse 19, you can follow along as he writes this. I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Christ, this, that is to say, my imprisonment, my chains, my circumstances, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope. Now, in our modern vernacular, the word hope is one of those warm, fuzzy words. Usually, it's utterly neutered of anything having to do with faithful assurance and certainty. It's one of those fluffy words. But that is not Paul's sense when he uses the word hope. Immediately, verse 19, you can almost feel his faithful certainty leap off the page as he declares, I know, I'm sure, I'm certain that all this tribulation will result in my deliverance. And interestingly, the Greek word for deliverance is the same word for salvation. And so some commentators think Paul's just speaking of getting out of jail, and I think certainly that could be in the near vision, but I'm more convinced Paul is speaking of my eternal salvation. And interestingly, this verse... This phrase in verse 19, this will turn out for my deliverance. That phrase is an exact parallel of Job in the Greek Old Testament. You may remember Job and the enormity of his suffering and his afflictions and all that he lost. And you remember Job said, though God slay me, yet I will trust in him, though he slay me. Job looked at his losses and his sufferings, his accusations of his friends, and his hope was that all of this will turn out for my salvation. And I can't prove it, but I think that Paul had in mind the life of Job when he wrote those words. 
Paul, like Job, has this eager expectation that whatever the earthly outcome, his salvation is secured. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm confident my prison sentence, no matter the verdict of a Roman court, no matter what may come, all of this suffering is producing a hope that will not put me to shame. But there's more. Because what exactly is it that Paul is so hopeful for? What is the content of his hope? Well, I think we can see Paul's hope is two-pronged. Verse 20, as he continues, he says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Now, from the outside looking in, you have to, have to ask yourself, Paul, what are you talking about? I mean, here's a man who was once a respected leader. He's trained by one of the best in the Jewish synagogues. He's a Roman citizen, and now he's imprisoned, possibly facing execution before a Roman court. And so you have to ask, Paul, on what possible grounds do you have to declare that shame is not in your future? If anything seems certain in your future, it would be shame and disgrace and humiliation. But he's not even done there. His hope abounds as he continues in verse 20. He says, not only will I not be ashamed, but positively stated, full courage. I will have full courage. I will have full boldness. And that presses the question even harder. Paul, what is there to be bold about? Paul, please tell me you haven't gone delusional in prison looking at those jail bars. I'm reminded of the great Civil War general, General Thomas Jackson, better known as Stonewall Jackson, a nickname he earned for being as brave and courageous in battle as a Stonewall. There was one time one of his captains asked him, General, how is it you keep so cool and so calm under battle? when you have this rain of shell and bullets that are raining down upon you. And here's General Stonewall's answer. He replies, Captain, my belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. And that is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally as brave. I think the Apostle Paul would say yes and amen to the general and not only has the sovereign God fixed the time of my death, He has fixed the very purpose of my life. As He expands, verse 20, that now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Paul's answer, I won't be ashamed because Christ will be honored. I won't be disgraced because the prestige of Christ will be advanced. Stated negatively, the one thing that would bring me disgrace and shame would be if the Lord Jesus Christ would not be honored in His life. And that word for honor in verse 20 is its not the usual Greek word you run across, you run across for the word honor. It's the Greek word megaluno. Now mega, you know the word mega. If something's mega, it's, it's great, it's big, it's large. And then this word luno which just means to make large or to expand. And so Paul is saying, look, this is my, my eager longing that Christ would be mega-magnified in my life or my death. And that is why there is no possibility of shame. If he lives, he lives for Christ. If Paul is executed, Christ is made much of. And that is why there is this reason for full courage and boldness. I do think that calls for a radical recalibration of our lives. A radical recalibration of our understanding of shame and honor. So often, 
Our boldness, our courage is found wanting because it's calibrated off of other things than Christ's glory. It's calibrated off of my own reputation, perhaps, my esteem, the fear of man, the concern of what others may think. And make no mistake, the world is quick to shame us if we do not fall right in step with the world's virtues and agenda. But you see Paul's boldness. His courage is calibrated squarely off of this, that Christ would be enlarged, and there really is no other consideration beyond that. But he's still not done there. Because next comes this massive revolution in Scripture. Paul continues his thought in verse 20, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. In the Old Testament, and particularly in the psalmist, you see this, death itself sometimes is talked about as a shame. The psalmist will, th- will say things like, what profit is there in death? Will the dust give praise to God? I die, I turn to dust, and you've never heard of dust particles praising God. Of course not. So the psalmist says, what profit is there in death? Death is something largely reserved for for the enemy. But now, in Christ, and because of Christ's resurrected power, because Christ is the last Adam, because Christ is victorious over death, Paul says, even in death, there is no shame. And whoever believes in me will never be put to shame, even in death. And so in all of this, it's as if Paul is saying, look, here's my secret to life. My secret to life is how I view death. And I view it all in union with Christ. One of the creeds of our military special forces is to leave no man behind. Leave no man behind. Essentially, the creed is saying that So the soldier go out and and wage war and battle, and should that soldier die on the battlefield, it is the duty of the remaining soldiers, the soldiers who are still alive, to go and to retrieve that body, no matter the cost and no matter the danger. And from the outside, you think of that strategy, and you might think that, that seems like a very impractical military strategy, that you would risk the lives of living soldiers to go and retrieve a body. Of course, that is only to those who don't understand the concept of honor. They are in a sense saying we do this and we pay this price because we are honoring that soldier. Such that it is that his life was not spent in vain. You see what that means? Since that is the case, that means for any soldier going out into battle, no matter what, honor is at the end of it. If he lives, if he's, if he's victorious in battle, there's honor. If he dies, his body is retrieved and he will be honored. But either way, at the outset, there is honor. And friends, how much more glorious is this Christian life of ours? That the honor is not for one another primarily, but for the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That if I live, I live for God. But if I die, I die for God. And that is where Paul heads next. In that climactic, famous statement, verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And this is the heart of Paul's hope. And this is the foundation of his boldness. And this is why he could be sorrowful yet rejoicing. His life defined by Christ, his death defined by Christ. So if you're here this morning, you are not a Christian. You're not 
a believer in Christ. You need to know that when Paul says, for me to live is Christ, he's not being a relativist. He's not saying, look, this is just my personal preference. This works for me, but everyone's got to find their own distinct emphasis. I think if Paul were here, the question he would put before you is to live is what? To live is what? And we could say, well, to live is money. To live is success. To live is family. To live is pleasure. To live is ambition. Whatever it is. The truth is, whatever you've placed in that blank, and be sure there is something in that blank. Whatever you've put in that blank that if it is anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, it is ultimately unsatisfying and is a false God. If there's anything in that blank other than Christ, you cannot join Paul in saying death is gain. You die and your money and your family and your ambition and pursuit of pleasure and whatever else it is dies with you. And even more so than that... The sobering witness of Scripture is that it's not simply death, but a second death, an eternal torment and separation from the living God. But in Christ, death is gain. And Paul could say that because he entrusted himself fully to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the one who conquered death by paying the penalty for sin and absorbing the wrath of God and who was resurrected in power. And to the people of God, it begs this question of us. Could you echo Paul's sentiment? Could you say, yes, to live is Christ. Every day I spend is spent obeying Christ and honoring Christ and wanting to know more of Christ and wanting to be more and more like Christ and my death is fully, completely bound up in my union with Christ and it comes out of my fingertips in the way I live life. Now, if you're like me, maybe as you seek to answer that question, you have this pause. <laughs> You have this hesitation. You say, well, I, I, I want to. I desire to. I wish I could echo Paul, but the truth of the matter is I'm in so many ways a, quote, normal Christian, and I fail so often in that endeavor. Well, just notice, because I found this to be so encouraging. Just notice, because I skipped over this deliberately. Notice Paul's boldness, his confidence, his hope does not take place in isolation from the church and from the body of Christ. Paul's boldness, his love for Christ is not in isolation. If you glance back up to verse 19, the whole thought begins with this. Firstly, through their prayers. Firstly, it's through prayer. We so often think of Paul as the, the, the super apostle, but he says, look, I'm dependent. I, Paul, I'm dependent upon the prayers of the Philippians for nothing less than my salvation. Paul is aware of the tolls that isolation and persecution can take, his need of courage, and it's prayer of others that carries him forward. So what an encouragement for us to be people constant in prayer for one another, laboring to pray for one another. And we can come before the Lord and say, Lord, give me the strength. Give my brother the strength to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Amen. Secondly, how will such prayers be made effective? How do we know our prayers aren't just bouncing off the ceiling, so to speak? Well, secondly, verse, second half of verse 19, it is through the help of the Spirit of Christ. 
Paul's counting on prayers and the presence of the Spirit of Christ. There's none other than the Spirit of Christ. It is just as Jesus told His disciples before He is to leave them. When He says, look, it is better that I go. It is better that I go because I will send the Comforter. I will send My Spirit who will take the things of Christ and show them to you and reveal them to you and lead you into all truth. So Paul is counting on prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ. And the word help there is so perfect. Because it doesn't take a great imagination to wonder, what would Paul need help for? What would Paul need in isolation? Fear, perhaps? And the Spirit supplies perfect love that casts out fear. Anxiety? And the Spirit supplies peace and directs us and refreshes us in the promises of God. Weakness? And the Spirit supplies power from on high and boldness to continue to preach the Gospel. Temptation? Despair? And the Spirit supplies faithfulness and deliverance. How about discouragement? And the Spirit lifts our eyes and our gaze to Christ who is the hope of glory. And so you see this perfect harmony. The church prays and the Spirit supplies. You pray and the Spirit helps. And so why can we pray with all confidence? Because it is none other than the Spirit of Christ who is interceding for us at the throne of grace. So that is a word on, so that is a word on Paul's bold hope. Christ will be honored. To live is Christ, to die is game, a hope forged by the power of the Spirit. But now comes Paul's tension, his vacillation, if you will, his indecision. It's as if Paul says, let me think out loud for a minute, let me weigh out my dilemma for the church. Verses 22 through 24. And you can see it already in verse 22. He says, if I live in the flesh, flesh not in the negative sense, I think he just means if I keep on living, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. Now, I don't think he means he actually has the option to choose, as if he can just go tap one of the guards and say, hey, you know, that was a fun experiment. I've got some good entries in my diary. I think I'll, I'll go home now. <laughs> Rather, I think we're getting to peer into his mind. It's like we're getting an x-ray of Paul's soul as he wrestles through these conflicting desires. In verse 23, you see his angst in full bloom with this little idiom, I am hard-pressed. In our, in our vernacular, we'd say, I am torn in two over this. On the one hand, verse 23, my great desire, my passion, is to depart and be with Christ. So in case we missed it, he says outright, here is why death is profitable. And when you think about this, you could compare this with so many other ideas that are floating out there. You could compare this, for instance, with the Muslim faith. And certain interpretations of the Quran, not every interpretation, but certain interpretations that teach that if a Muslim male is martyred or he dies in the faith, what awaits him is, is in death, his gain is a bevy of virgins and a type of sensual paradise. That is his gain that's held out to him. Or you can look at the prevailing philosophy during Paul's day, which taught that death, you finally escape your body. Your soul finally gets to float free through the clouds. Because your body is like a prison. And maybe some of you are saying, yeah, I can buy that. My body feels like a prison. That sounds about right. Or even today, where death is just vaguely commented on as going to a, quote, better place. And I hope you see that is precisely not what Paul is saying. 
One unfortunate commentary I read said, entitled this section as, Paul's Preference for Death. Well, that is woefully incomplete. Paul does not prefer death in itself. Paul prefers Christ Himself. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And it's that glory, the glory of Christ, that has Him so worked up in desiring to depart. And so he mentions no words in terms of which two of these options are on equal footing. Verse 23, it's far superior. I'd much rather, much rather be with Christ. And so we know if he chooses to remain, it can't be for some selfish reason, some personal advantage. And that's exactly what's fleshed out in verse 24. If you look there, he says to continue on in this life is indispensable. It's more necessary. It's necessary. We might ask, well, necessary for, for, for who? And Paul would say, for you. He would say, for the body of Christ. For the Philippians. If Paul were here and we pressed him and say, Paul, why are you choosing something that, that is not your desire? I mean, you're telling me you desire to go and be with Christ. Why, why are you going to remain on? He would look you in the eye and he would say, I'm doing it for you. For the body of Christ. And reading that, I was reminded of the great pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor during, during World War II in Nazi Germany, and he had multiple chances to escape Nazi Germany. And not simply escape, but he had chances to come and, and take a prestigious teaching position at a seminary. And in the end, Dietrich Bonhoeffer decided to stay in Nazi Germany and ultimately was martyred, died for the faith. And here are his words as to why he remained on. I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany to share the trials of this time with my people. And that is quite close to Paul, who says, I'm going to remain on for the sake of the Philippians. And I hope you find it encouraging that though Paul says it's necessary for him to remain, it's not a necessary evil. In other words, Paul does not long for heaven in such a way that makes life here on earth a drudge and an utter waste of time. It is unfortunate how often as Christians we talk about life as if it's this unfortunate detour on our way to heaven. And we're just biding our time here on earth. No, Paul says to remain on in the flesh is not fruitless, but fruitful work. There's nothing pointless or purposeless or meaningless. It's fruitful labor. I'm going to abide in the vine who is Christ, and that means I'm going to bear fruit for God. I've often wondered, why is this section of Scripture even here? In the sense of why do we get to see Paul thinking out loud? I think the reason is, is that what Paul is modeling for the Philippians and for us is what it looks like to not look to your own interest merely, but to look to the interest of others. We get to see humility in action. I mean, to live as Christ, after all, is such a lofty statement. It's such a profound statement. Sometimes you hear that and you go, okay, well, give me an example. I mean, give me some practical, concrete example of what that looks like. And here it is. Paul's so convinced of his immovable blessedness and hope as if I live, that means Christ. If I die, it means Christ. It means that, that he can evaluate this otherwise treacherous situation in light of what would be beneficial for a brother or sister in Christ. It's true humility. So I realize if you're here this morning, we're obviously not in the same situation as Paul. We're obviously not in prison. 
facing down the prospect of execution. But perhaps you do bump against, up against a similar thought. Why am I here? What is the point? Why am I in the job that I'm in? Why am I in the relationships that I'm in? Why am I in this body of Christ? Maybe even as you advance into your older years, it's this sense of frustration and futility. Well, take your cues from Paul and consider the simple truth. That to live is Christ. To live one more day has the prospect that Christ would be honored in your body and that others in the body of Christ would be encouraged and edified and blessed through you as you abide in the vine who is Christ. So, Paul's hope to live as Christ to die is gain. Paul's tension. He's hard-pressed between the two, but he's going to remain on. Lastly, Paul's conviction. Verses 25 through 26. Paul comes full circle now. It's as if his little thought experiment is over and Paul is now convinced that he will remain on with the Philippians and return to them. And so verse 25, he says, Convinced of this, I know I will remain and I will continue with you all. But he's yet to tell us exactly why is he remaining on? What is the fruit of the fruitful labor? So he gives two reasons. Firstly, verse 25, their progress. Specifically, their progress in the faith. Sometimes we think of faith as either all or nothing. Right? Black or white. Look, you either believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or you don't. And it's just that simple. And Scripture says, no, it's not. It's not just that simple. You may remember the father of the demon-possessed boy. I believe. Help my unbelief. Our faith progresses. The glory of Christ shines brighter and brighter. God's promises become more and more precious to us. Our seeking of the kingdom of God becomes more and more zealous in our lives. And that is the kind of progress Paul wants. And what a joy it is to see that in the lives of others. I know myself as a father, it's such a joy to see my little children grow and progress. And as if Paul is saying, what a joy it is to look at a brother and sister and you see me and you think, wow, spiritually you have grown two feet taller since the last time I saw you. And so we should long for and desire that kind of progression of the faith using the means that God has given us through prayer, through the preaching of God's Word, through the hearing of God's Word, through the fellowship with the saints, and through sacrament, knowing all along that we grow with the growth that is from God. So that's reason one. Instrumental in their progress of the faith. Secondly, reason two, he wants their joy. He wants to see their joy in the faith in verse 25. Joy is one of those wonderfully contagious virtues. And Paul is one of those guys that just can't stop rejoicing. Paul shows us that you look at your condition, your circumstance, and then you look to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look only at your circumstances, if Paul only looks at his jail bars, there is no reason for joy. There is no reason for abounding in hope. But what Paul models for us, I think, is what the Puritans called thinking of Christ in the right kind of way. Thinking of Christ in all of our afflictions and all of our circumstances. Are you in prison? Paul says, well, Christ is honored. And we can multiply every example. Let's keep going. Are you accused by the world? By sin? By your flesh? Well, Christ is your advocate. Are you guilty of sin? Well, Christ is your high priest. Are you afflicted by your enemies? Well, Christ is King of kings and He's Lord of lords. Are you discouraged? Well, Christ is your comforter. 
And we can go on and on and on. But there is no condition, there is no affliction, there is no circumstance for which the value and the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ does not meet and surpass and give an occasion for joy. And that is the kind of joy that Paul is going to remain on as he spread through the body of Christ. Now, as he closes, verse 26, he sounds almost arrogant in the way he words this. Verse 26, he says, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory. And again, it sounds arrogant. Imagine if I stood up here and said, Greetings, I know I'm the guest speaker, but guess what? I am your reason for glory. Welcome. That would be off-putting. But as you keep reading, you realize it's what this whole section has been about. To live as Christ. And so Paul says, when I returned you, and we shed some tears, and we rejoice together, and we grow in the faith together, and we abound in joy together, what we're really doing, what we're really doing is glorying in the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives together, in our hearts knit together through Jesus Christ. As he says elsewhere, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And that is the same truth in this body, when this body rejoices together and progresses in the faith together. And so as we close, what is Paul modeled for us? Well, certainly we could say to live as Christ and to die as gain. We could probably extract more juice out of that statement. So three quick closers, if you will. Firstly, gaining Christ brings us hope. What was the essence of Paul's hope? What was his eager expectation? Well, he was certain of his salvation despite suffering. He was convinced that he would not be put to shame because he was united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And even death itself meant immediate presence with the Lord Jesus. And that is why to live as Christ and to die as gain is a transformative statement in the here and the now. That is the very same essence of our hope that we have. Our present sufferings are sharing, are filling up the afflictions of Christ. I think one of the key little phrases too in this section is that Paul says this is the case now as always. Paul made this his daily normal practice. We might think, well, to live as Christ to die as gain, that's one of those statements that's reserved for the cataclysmic events in our lives. That's, that's reserved for life and death moments. But Paul says, no, this is the case now and always. And that is the truth. If we do not make this our now, it will not be our always. And if we make it our now by the power of the Spirit, it will be our hope always. In that sense, it is intensely practical. Secondly, not only hope, but gaining Christ cultivates humility. True gospel humility. Paul subdued his desire to depart and to be with the Lord Jesus Christ to see others progress in the faith. And it didn't sour his mood. right? He didn't sulk about it. He said it was fruitful work, fruitful labor. And we have the same harvest to look forward to. We have the same fruitful labor to look forward to as we grow in Christ and see others grow in Christ. And lastly, hope, humility, and gaining Christ also means honor. Honoring Christ. We so often talk about loving Christ and believing Christ and obeying in Christ and trusting in Christ. And well, we should. But when was the last time you thought of honoring the Lord Jesus Christ? 
setting aside Christ in your heart and honoring Him. And friends, that can be the case. It must be the case in all of our lives. The way we steward our finances, the way we speak to one another, the way we endure suffering, the way we train up our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, the way we serve one another, the way we hold to His truth. In all of these things, we could join Paul in saying, I make it my desire to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. So hope, humility, and honor, all because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let us pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we do praise Your name that You have not withheld Your Son from us, but You have freely given Him up for us all. That on Him You are pleased to lay all of our iniquities. That You have joined us to Him. That You have raised Him up and You have so raised us up with Him. I pray for us as we are sent out this week that we could echo Paul in saying to live as Christ and to die as gain and to go forward not in the power of our own strength or our own might but to go forth in the power of Your Spirit unto Your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and Amen.